God, we are thankful today, again, to gather. We're thankful for your word. God, we're thankful that we can praise your name. Now as we come to this portion of the service, God, that, that we follow your command to participate in the preaching and teaching of your word, God, I pray that we would come with humble hearts, ready to receive what you have for us today. God, we thank you that your spirit is working amongst us. We thank you that your word is alive and that it still changes lives. And I pray this morning that our lives would be changed as we look into the perfect mirror of the word of God. God, may you point out in us what needs to be changed. May you point out in us the flaws that we have grown comfortable with. God, may you point out in us the things that we're not even aware of yet as being something that you would desire to have different. God, help us to be submitted to your spirit and submitted to your word that as we leave today, we would be changed into the image of Christ. Do pray for children's church downstairs and for nursery, God, that you'd be with each of those ministries as well, that those children would feel your love and sense your presence and follow your leading in their lives as well. We thank you again for what you're going to do today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Title of our time together this morning is A Word from Christ, and certainly we could say that is what all of the Gospels are, is a word from Christ. But as we look into this passage today, uh, the words that Christ speaks are, are pointed, and they're ones that, that I believe are still relevant for us today. And so I, I do pray that as we look at these words, that we would not look at them as a word from Mark, uh, that we would not look at them as a word from Peter, who, who passed these things along to Mark, most likely, that we would not look at them as a word from Dan, but that we would truly see them as a word from Christ. As we've made our way through the Gospel of Mark and to the end of chapter 9, we must understand by now that at times Christ spoke very pointedly to his disciples. As we've said, his words were always calculated and sometimes they were even confusing. But when you meditate on his words long enough, you begin to not just understand his words, but the heart behind the words as they were spoken. Some would say that harsh or pointed words come from an angry heart, but that's not always the case. For Christ spoke very harshly to the disciples at times, but it was always with a heart of love. He did indeed get frustrated with this group of misfits, but his heart was always for them. And in fact, we could say that if Christ remained silent in their errors, that that would have been from a hardened heart because he wasn't pouring into them when they were going astray. As we come to the end of chapter 9, and we look at this passage, I was at first tempted to break it up into three sections, because there is enough here for three sermons. And I'm going to try not to preach three sermons today, um, but we don't have church tonight, and so (laughs) we'll see what time we get out. But as I read these passages over and over again, and as I meditated on the words, there truly is a central theme that Christ is seeking to drive into the hearts and minds of his disciples. And as we dive into this text today, I pray that we would understand it, that we would grasp it, and then that we would seek to live it out through the power of the Spirit of God. As Christ is thinking about what is next for him, we always understand that he was also thinking about what is next for his disciples. Christ was continually saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise again. And he wasn't speaking those words to incite fear in the hearts and the lives of the disciples that would cause them to be useless, but rather he was calling them to pay attention to something that he was giving them insight into that nobody else was gaining at this time. And so Christ, though he spoke vaguely at times, 
he often interpreted those words for the disciples so that they could have something to cling to in the days ahead. And as Christ had been discouraged by the disciples' actions, by their attitudes, we see that he takes time here again to invest solely in them in this moment, understanding that his investment would then turn to help impact the whole world when the disciples finally grasped what was going on here. And so as it was important for the disciples to focus on the words of Christ in their day, friends, it's important for us to focus on the words of Christ in our day. The words of Christ are timeless. The truths that he speaks, they don't just stick in one generation or one time period, but they're impactful to each of us as we submit ourselves to them in the day and age that we live in. So as we dig into this next section, I would ask us today to consider these words from Christ as being bread for our nourishment, that they would be salve for our wounds, that they would be a map to guide us as we walk in this world, and that they would be a light that shines into the depths of our own hearts. The big idea this morning is this, the words from Christ are given so that we would examine our hearts before him. The words of Christ are given so that we would examine our hearts before him. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. It's my prayer this morning that we, as a church body, would have hearts that are submitted and surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and that as we listen to his words, they would change us into his image. So three things this morning out of this text that hopefully will be a help to us as we consider the words from Christ. The first one is a corrective word, a corrective word. In verses 38 through 41, again, the Bible says this, and John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a mighty miracle, uh, a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. So the first word we see Christ speak in this passage is a corrective word. As Jesus continues his time with the disciples, we see that John speaks up. And usually as we think of John, we think of meek and mild John, right? We think of the disciple that Jesus loved, the one who was close to Jesus' heart. And of the three, Peter, James, and John, we would almost always assume that John was in some ways Christ's favorite. What did he carry around as the title? Whether this was a self-proclaimed title or a Christ-given title, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. They had a special relationship. They had a unique relationship. But we must remember at the very same time that when Jesus gave John and James a nickname, what did he call them? The sons of thunder. Why? Because these were still rough and rowdy men. Though John was meek and mild, and though I do believe he did have a sensitive heart, especially towards the things of Christ, we must understand that he was also fiery and zealous And he was a part of the conversation we looked at last week where the disciples were debating who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so though John was the disciple that Jesus loved and though he did have unique characteristics about him, we still understand that John was a human 
And that he did not fully understand at this point even the purpose of Christ, though Christ had defined it to them many times. So in verse 38, John speaks and he says this, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name and he follows not us, so we told him to stop. We rebuked him. We forbade him from doing this thing that he was doing. Now, if you think like I do and you think about the disciples in the way that I think about them, as the other disciples heard John speaking, there was likely jealousy that rose up within them, saying to themselves, man, what is John doing? He's trying to get in with Jesus a little more than he already is. He's trying to make himself look good. He's trying to make Jesus realize that he's the one who saw this, that he's the one who put a stop to this. And there was probably some part of John that that was true. That he was desiring to be noticed by Christ. That he was desiring to maybe even hear the words that Christ spoke to Peter. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And John is probably thinking in this moment, man, if I could just hear those words of Christ, then I would be satisfied. So John says, we saw this guy casting out devils. In your name, Jesus. And I want you to know that we put a stop to this because he's not one of us. He doesn't follow us. And as he's probably expecting a pat on the back from Christ, as he's probably expecting a word of encouragement from Christ, what does Jesus say? In verse 39, he says, forbid him not. And I don't think this was a quiet and and somber tone from Christ at this moment, but I think it was an elevated tone saying, forbid him not. What are you doing? Like, here's this guy doing what you guys couldn't do just a few chapter or a few verses ago, and you're forbidding him likely because you're full of jealousy. Jesus says, don't forbid him. For any man that's casting out devils or demons in my name could never do so if he spoke at all any ounce of evil about me. Jesus says, you need to remember this, John, that he who is not against us is on our part. And Jesus speaks a corrective word to John, but also to the disciples in this moment that I think is a corrective word that still needs to be spoken today. As we wonder in our minds, why did John speak this way? Why didn't John let this man just continue in the work that he was doing? I think there are are many reasons why John put a stop to this. I think John was in part jealous. That this man was doing such a miraculous work as casting out demons in the name of Christ when he knew that his friends, his his brothers in the brotherhood of the disciples weren't able to do this thing when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And so he looked on this guy with jealousy. I think John was still vying for position in the kingdom of God. Saying, hey Jesus, I put a stop to this guy and that should show you that I'm worthy of position and prominence when you set up your kingdom. I think John craved power. He wanted in some way to be noticed. He had an us versus them attitude. And you can see that in what he says, we told him to stop because he's not one of us. I think John was insecure in his position. And therefore, he needed to criticize somebody else who was doing something that he himself desired to do. And as this type of attitude was pervasive in the hearts and minds of the disciples, friends, I think this attitude is still pervasive in the church at times when we live for our own purposes and not the purposes of God. I love what Daniel Aiken, who is a a pastor and a commentator, 
said on this passage. He said, pull for your brothers and sisters in Christ, not against them. After all, though we may play different positions, all who follow Jesus as Lord are on the same team. And friends, what the disciples misunderstood and what John misunderstood is that though this man was not walking with them on a daily basis, he was still a part of the same team. Why? Because he was casting out devils in whose name? Jesus' name. And Jesus goes on to say, when you do anything in my name, with a heart that is pure, you will not lose your reward. And I think in part that word that was spoken in verse 41 was, was a word that was spoken directly against John. What does he say in verse 40? He says, for whosoever, I'm sorry, 41, for whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And what did John not do in this scenario? He didn't go give that man a cup of water in Christ's name. He didn't go and encourage that man saying, hey, keep up the good work that you're doing because you're changing lives. He didn't go and speak a a word of, of praise about God because of what God was doing through this man, but rather he forbade him. He called him to stop. He called him to cease his work. And basically in verse 41, Jesus is saying, hey, John, you've lost a reward in this moment because you were focused on the wrong things. My friend, I believe there's many of us in our day and age, even myself at times, who instead of applauding the work that God is doing in and through other people, we begin to to get a spirit of jealousy. We begin to get a spirit that is discontent in what God is doing through us because we want God to do in us what he's doing in somebody else. And so we begin to criticize them. And when we criticize them, Jesus says we're not even in a place to receive a reward because we're focused on the wrong thing. And so I would ask us today, as we think about this corrective word from Christ, where in our hearts and minds do we need to be corrected? Where in our hearts and minds do do we need to be refocused on the truth of Christ and Christ alone? Where in our minds do we need to stop looking at, at what we perceive is going on and start seeing what is actually going on because God can work in ways that we can't comprehend. I have found it interesting in the church world that when one church is flourishing that is not your church, what happens? We're quick, quick to say things like, man, well, they're only growing because they've compromised. But then what happens when our church grows? Well, we're growing because we have a touch of God. Right? And what is that? It's a spirit of, of criticism that is pervasive. Why? Because we want to experience what others experience are experiencing, even though it may not be what God wants for us to experience in this moment. I love what Jesus says in verse 40. For he that is not against us is on our part. Jesus is saying, hey, John, he might not be doing everything the way that you do it, but understand this, he's doing what he's doing in my name. And because he's doing what he's doing in my name, cheer him on, don't forbid him to continue on. Because he's doing what he's doing in my name and he's seeing mighty and powerful results, give glory to God and don't think about how you're missing out in this moment. In a baseball team, when the team wins, who wins? Everybody on the team, right? And so if the body of Christ truly is a team and we see people who are excelling as it would appear from an external perspective, what should we do with them? We should rejoice. 
we should rejoice because we're on the same team. Yesterday at the park, I was excited to see another uh, pastor in town. He's, he's, on, um, he's an elder at another local church, and I went down and saw him and was just excited to see him because he's got such a sweet spirit, and we just began talking about um, this, this reality in Mark 9 that we're on the same team. We're doing the same thing for the same reason, and what is that? So that God receives the glory and so that lives are changed through the gospel. How foolish would I be to stand here today and say that Northside is the only good church in Franklin County, Vermont? It would be absolutely foolish. Why? Because I would be doing exactly what John did here. And what would Jesus say to me? You fool. Don't talk evil about them when they're doing good things in my name. Don't, don't speak a word of criticism against them when they're on the same team, they're doing the same thing. And though they may have different preferences, the reality is they preach the same gospel. And just as the picture of this man casting out demons is a picture of lives being changed through the gospel, we believe that when somebody preaches the gospel, we applaud them in their efforts. Why? Because that's the power of God that brings salvation to the people that live in this world. And so instead of judging another man's servant, we should applaud another man's servant. Why? Because Paul tells us in Romans 14 that it's not to you that that servant stands or fall, but it's to his master that that servant stands or falls. As we think about serving Christ in a collective way with brothers and sisters who are not even a part of this church, we push forward with, with a, a desire to see God glorified through our efforts, and that's what Jesus was getting across to the disciples here. And so first off this morning, we see a corrective word. We see a corrective word to remind us that just because people are not gathered with us in this building, that just because people might do things a little differently than we do them at times, if they do it in the name of Christ, then we should applaud their efforts. So where do we need to receive this corrective word today? Where in our hearts have we become critical towards those who do things different than we do? Where, where in our minds or our lives have we drawn lines where Christ himself hasn't drawn lines? Where in our lives do we need to say, hey, we're willing to look past this, this difference for the sake of the gospel and press on together rather than dividing and speaking criticism towards those who are doing things differently than we are? I think when we speak a word of criticism... I think that when we draw a line that Christ himself hasn't drawn, then Jesus speaks to us as well in verse 41 and says, hey, if you're not encouraging them because they're in Christ and you're in Christ, then in some ways you need to understand that you have lost a reward that could have been yours. And so Christ gives a corrective word. The second thing we, Christ, we see Christ do is give a cautionary word. In verses 42 through 48, the Bible continues on and says, And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. Now, I'm going to read the rest of this passage, and I want you to picture in your minds the reality of Christ's words if they were played out, because he's painting a very big picture here. He's using words that, that grab our attention and that grip our hearts and that cause us to, to think contemplatively about what it is that he's actually saying. And he's doing so to grab our attention. He goes on in verse 43 and says, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. 
For it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. For it is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire which never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. For it is better for there to, thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. As Christ corrects the attitude of John and the disciples and by nature the rest of us in verses 38 through 41, we see that, that Christ then goes on to give a cautionary word about the reality of them missing the sin in their lives because they were so consumed with what other people were doing. He says, John, here you are ridiculing and criticizing this man who's doing a kingdom work in my name, and all the while you think you're doing a good thing without even recognizing the sin that has pervaded your own heart. So he says, I want you to think through what I just said, and I I want you to think through what I'm going to say, and in all of this, I want you to examine yourself. We are prone in passages like this to think to ourselves, man, I know somebody who needs to pluck out their eye. I know somebody who needs to cut off their foot and cut off their hand because they're continually finding themselves drawn by their sinful lust into sin. But what is Christ saying? He's saying, examine your own heart. Examine your own life. Don't think of those who are in the room. Don't think of those who are not in the room. But think about yourself. Examine your own heart before a holy and just God and see what measures of correction you need to take or make in your life so that you can walk the straight and narrow that Christ has laid out for us. John was concerned about the man who was doing demon exorcisms, but Christ was saying, hey, John, you need to look at yourself. And in verses 42 through 48, Jesus uses some big illustrations to show the heart we should have towards our own sinfulness. Mary Flannery O'Connor, who is an American author and who knew something about shock value, once said this, to the heart of hearing you shout and to the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. And isn't that what Christ was doing in this moment? What has he said about the disciples so many times already? How is it that you do not understand? How is it that your hearts are still hard? How is it that your eyes cannot perceive the truths that I have laid out before you? And he says, how long shall I be with you? When are you going to get it? And so he draws these big pictures and he uses these big illustrations to get the attention of the disciples. And I want to be clear from the get-go, Christ is not telling any of us to go get a millstone, which If you're unfamiliar with what a millstone was, it was a giant wheel that was used to to crush wheat. And they were so big that they were built in place and they were moved by multiple animals of burden like a donkey to get them to do the work. And Jesus is using that picture here. He says, it's better for you to hang that millstone that couldn't even be moved by a single man, to hang it around your neck and to drown in the sea than it would be for you to offend one of these little ones. Now, is Christ calling us to go out after 
church and go down to St. Albans Bay and to um, fill some buckets with concrete and stick our feet in them and then have somebody push us over the, uh, the dock down there at St. Albans Bay. Is that what God is, Christ is calling us to do? No. But what's he calling us to do? To understand the danger of offending a little one in Christ. Why did Christ speak this? Because what did John just do? He just told the guy to stop doing what he was doing because John didn't approve of it from John's perspective. And Jesus is saying, hey, John, you offended a little one. Now, now what is a little one? A little one is any of us because we are all little. It doesn't just mean a child as we looked at last week. It doesn't just mean somebody who's new in the faith. It means that we need to be so careful in our lives to understand that our actions and the way that we live and the way that we present ourselves and the way that we push our preferences at times can be so dogmatic and offensive that we can cause people to stumble from the faith. And Christ said it would be better for you to go jump off a bridge with concrete shoes on than it would be for you to offend one of my little ones who is doing my work in my way, even though you don't approve of it. And so he's using a big picture. He's shouting because John had been hard of hearing. He's drawing a big image, a scary image. Why? Because John was slow to understand and slow to perceive the mission that Christ came for and the mission that he was sending the disciples on. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? He continues on and he begins again to speak about the personal life, the the inward life, the the life that that you have control over. And he says this, and if, if thy hand offend thee in verse 43, cut it off. Now, I like my hands. I'm not gonna lie. I I like both my hands. I'm left-handed, I favor my left hand. I think truly spiritual people are left-handed. Um, it's the narrow way. The, the broad way, most people are right-handed. The narrow way is for left-handed people, and I'm on the narrow way. But I like both my hands. And if you've ever watched somebody that was missing a, an arm or a hand, it's a struggle through life. But you know what Jesus is saying? If your hand offends you, cut it off. Because it would be better for you to go through life with only one hand than it would be to enter into hell with two hands. It would be better for you to take drastic measures in your life to to call your attention to the thing that is causing you to sin and cut it out than it would be for you to continue thinking you're a child of God but bearing no fruit of that reality at all. And so Jesus says, cut your hand off. Again, he's not speaking in reality. He's using a picture. And if the disciples, if you heard somebody say, hey, go cut your hand off, that would cause you to stop and think. And that's what was happening with the disciples here. Jesus was a master teacher. And he was calling for the disciples' attention in this matter of the sin that was residing within themselves. He goes on, and we're going to come back and hit some of these verses in a moment, but in verse 45, he says, if your foot offends, you cut it off. For it's better to enter halt into life than having two feet and to be cast into hell. And then he says in verse 47, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. For it's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. I want to make a couple of things clear. First off, Christ is not saying that if, as a child of God, you sin, that you will lose your salvation. 
That's not what the passage is teaching. He's, he's showing extremes, right? He's saying it's better for you to understand the radical nature of the Christian life and mortify your flesh, kill the thing that, that is killing parts of you so that you can enter into life saying that I, that I gave up all these things on earth, but this is what I've gained in eternity rather than somebody who is enjoying all of the sinful pleasures of this world and is entering into hell for all eternity as a whole and full person. Jesus says you need to understand that, that this is a call to radical discipleship and radical disciples do what is necessary to maintain their, their submission under the lordship of Christ. Now in our day, what, what would Jesus say? If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your cell phone offends you, get rid of it. And this offense is not like, oh, I'm offended by what I saw on my cell phone. The offense is to cause to stumble. If you have things in your life that are causing you to stumble, then get rid of them. How many of us would be honest in here and say that we have struggled with sins in our lives and we have said, I can stop it whenever I want? Anybody? But how many of us know that reality is not true? And the reality is we're not stopping because there's something within us that doesn't want to stop to begin with. And so what does Jesus say? Get rid of that thing. Get rid of the thing that is causing you to fall into temptation. Get rid of the thing that is causing you to give in to your sinful desires. Get, get rid of that thing that is causing you to be less than I have enabled you to be. And sometimes we look at passages like this and we think that Jesus is calling us to, to radical discipleship through our own efforts and through our own power. No, what Jesus is saying is through my power, get rid of the thing that is not allowing you to be everything that I have enabled you to be. Do you know that in Christ and through the Spirit, God has enabled us to be radical disciples for the sake of the kingdom? But who is it that often draws us back from being that radical disciple? It's our own flesh. It's our own self-will. It's our own sinful desires. And so Jesus is calling the attention of the disciples because he could see that they were getting off track. And what did we see a few chapters ago as Jesus was speaking to the disciples? He said, beware of the leaven of who? The scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Because the scribes and the Pharisees had built themselves up in pride to say that we are the standard. That we are the ones that others need to look to. That we are the ones who get to say what is right and what is wrong. And what did John just do a few verses ago? The very thing that Jesus often criticized the scribes and the Pharisees for. He was elevating himself, and in elevating himself, he could not see his own sin. And so Jesus speaks this cautionary word, and he says, you need to take this discipleship thing seriously. I have not called you to myself because of who you are. I have called you to myself because of who I am. And I have an eternal purpose for you, John. I have an eternal purpose for you, disciples. I have an eternal purpose for you, followers of Jesus at Northside Baptist Church. And if you're truly going to follow me, then you need to be willing to cut off your hand and cut off your foot and pluck out your eye so that you can enter into eternity for the glory of God, saying, God, though it cost me something on this in this life, the cost was worth it. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. And isn't it true that in reality, in the end, true discipleship doesn't actually cost us anything? Jesus tells the disciples on that down the road, 
He said, you who've given up houses and family for my name, I'll return those to you a hundredfold in my Father's kingdom. So we need to listen to this cautionary word from Christ. We need to understand that we are not the standard to judge others by, that that we don't get to, to be the measuring mark that others look to, but Christ is. And when we keep our eyes on Christ, when we focus on Him, we will be the people that He wants us to be. And so I would ask us, church, what in your life needs to be cut off? What in your life needs to be plucked out? What in your life do you radically need to say, I'm going to abandon this thing so that I can follow Christ more fully and more passionately, that I can be the person that he has enabled me to be. It's not about me being who I can be. It's about me being who he's enabled me to be. What in our lives do we need to get rid of so that everything in our lives will point others to Christ? As the disciples heard these words, no doubt they... They gave pause to them. They thought about them because the graphic imagery is so great and the call of Christ is so real that they could feel the intensity of what Jesus was calling them to do. As Jesus is speaking about the reality of radical discipleship, he's also speaking about the reality of a future without Christ. Christ is not saying that we're saved because of what we do, we know that we're saved only because of what Christ has done. And he's called us to live in a particular way because of that. But at the very same time, he's unfolding this reality that there is an eternity without Christ. And it's a horrible eternity. And it's a place where the Bible says the worm doesn't die. This is a quote from, from Isaiah, where, where God is revealing to the Israelites that, hey, if you don't get this right, then you will pay for this for all of eternity then you will suffer for all of eternity. And if we're to be disciples who are pointing people to Christ, could we agree today that it would be worth everything we had to cut off and everything we had to pluck out to make sure that our lives are not offending those around us to where they never even see the true gospel of Jesus Christ? It's a message that we need to heed. It's a message that we need to listen to. And Christ gives this cautionary word Because he could see the pride rising up in the disciples. He could see the idolatry rising up in the disciples as they were vying for a position in the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, hey, you need to look at yourself because you're going astray. And so we see the corrective word from Christ. We see a cautionary word from Christ. And then finally, we see a counseling word from Christ. In verses 49 and 50, the passage continues And Jesus says this, For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltness, wherewith wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. Counseling word. Christ goes on to teach them a very helpful truth, truth. And this truth, unlike the last one that was focused on the external of of cutting things out of our lives. This one is very internal. Christ does not just want behavior modification. He wants heart change. He's not saying just do things differently so that you appease me, but he's saying I want you to be changed from the inside out. I want 
everything about you to be genuine and pure. And so he then goes into this illustration that honestly is very, very confusing. What is Jesus saying in verses 49 and 50? Again, it's one of those passages where if you take 10 commentaries, you're going to get 10 different answers. And so I'm going to walk through it in the best way that I know how, and so we can all be confused together. Does that sound good? That was a joke, hopefully. But what is, what is Christ saying? He says, everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. This idea of salt and sacrifices to us doesn't go together. But if you're familiar with Leviticus, salt and sacrifices go very well together. In fact, many of their sacrifices, they would have to pour salt on as a purifying, as a preservative to to make it acceptable to a holy and righteous and just God. And in fact, in Leviticus 2.13, there is this command given that every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt, neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings, thou shalt offer salt. And so when we see Jesus talk about salt in the New Testament, we have to understand that this is a theme throughout the Bible, that salt was always something that God used to show the reality of of his work in us. This preserving nature of salt, this purifying nature of salt, we can't purify ourselves, right? And so it is said that the Spirit of God is the salt of the covenant that God has made with us. And when the Spirit comes in us, does the Spirit ever leave us? He doesn't. He preserves us. But what else does the Spirit do? He purifies us. That purifying sanctification of the Spirit of God is what transforms our lives so that we live lives that look like the person of Jesus Christ. Again, I know this is is confusing. And so Jesus starts in verse 49 and he says this, for everyone shall be salted with fire. There's confusion. Who is the everyone that Jesus is speaking of? I think it means everyone. I think there's, there's a reality that Jesus is, is using a play on words to touch on every human that has ever lived. We know that one day unbelievers will go to a place of what? Of fire. They'll be salted with fire for all of eternity. And as hard as this is for us to understand, as they experience the wrath of God, again, this is hard for us to even comprehend, God in some way is glorified through that. He is. If you want to have a conversation about that later, I'm, I'm happy to dive into that a little deeper. But at the same time, as Christ says, everyone will be salted with fire, we have to think to the other side of the coin as well, which is who? It would be believers. Now, the, I, I believe the salting of fire comes in two ways in the lives of believers. Have you ever been purified through a trial? That's the salting of fire in this life. But as we think towards the judgment won't we one day have our works salted with fire again? That everything will be tried by fire. And what will last? The things that were done with the right motives. The things that were done from a pureness of heart. David Guzik says on this passage that salt was an important part of the offering because it spoke of the purity and the preservation and of the expense. 
and every sacrifice offered to God should be pure, it should be enduring, and it should cost something. In this one verse, God repeated that command three times. And so as we think about the purification of salt in us, and as we think of the Spirit of God being the salt of the covenant, He comes in us, and what is the Spirit of God? It's nothing else other than the fulfillment of the promise of Christ who said, when I go, who's going to come? The Spirit of God is going to come in, and what's He going to do? He's going to preserve you to the end, and He's going to sanctify you to look like my Son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Everyone clear as mud on that, right? We're going to move on to verse 50, and Jesus says, salt is good. So Jesus is saying that that the salt that I just described, the salting with fire in both instances is good. Salt is good, but then he goes on to say, but if the salt has lost its saltness, where shall you season it? Jesus is saying, hey, salt is only good if what? If it's salty. Now, if you know anything about salt, in our day and age, it's very hard for salt to lose its saltiness. It always has that flavor. But in Jesus' day, in the region that they were in, the salt that Jesus would have been describing would have been a salt that was impure. It was mixed with gypsum, and you could never get that gypsum out. And so what was the salt? It was impure. It was no good. It was worthless to be used, and you could never get the saltiness back in it. And then Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Back up to the beginning. What has Jesus been driving into the hearts and and minds of the disciples in, in all of Mark 9 and really even before this? This reality that God desires a pure heart before him. Pureness of heart. Isn't that what Jesus spoke about on the Sermon on the Mount? Pureness of heart, pureness of of mind in relationship to God. And that pureness comes from God himself. And so Jesus is telling the disciples that salt is good, but you got to have the right salt. you got to make sure your salt is the pure salt that has the ability to preserve, that has the ability to to change uh, the, the, the flavor or the appearance of something else. And he tells his disciples, have salt in yourselves. And then what does he say? And have peace with one another. What's the point? The disciples had impure hearts in this moment. The disciples were not at peace with one another. The disciples were fighting for position of prominence and power. The disciples were convinced that it was us twelve and no more. And that's why they rebuked the man who was, who was casting out demons in Christ's name because he wasn't one of them. The disciples had this pervasive thought in their minds that that they were something special and what they were missing all along is that in reality, Christ was someone special. And so Christ needed to be the focus of their lives. Christ needed to be what they lived for and what they died for. Christ needed to dictate everything that they did. And so his call to them to have salt in themselves was a call to have purity of heart and purity of mind before God the Father. And then that they would live at peace with one another. And I think this this counseling word that Christ gives is, is so needed in our church, the church in the world today. Why? Because we get so focused on the wrong things. Friend, I wonder, do you have salt in yourself today? Are you being purified by the Spirit of God or are you stagnant because your salt has become 
contaminated with other things? Do you have salt in yourself that is causing you to be at peace with those around you, to love the brotherhood, but also to love the people in the world enough that you'll give your lives to see them come to Christ as the gospel is preached? Jesus is saying, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And I wonder today, where in our lives do we need to hear this word from Christ? Where in our lives have we lost the saltiness? And if you remember back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says salt has lost its saltiness is good for what? For nothing but to be cast on the ground and walked on by the feet of men. You have to be careful in places like this in the Bible because Jesus is not saying that you've lost your worth in Christ because we, we can't lose our worth in Christ. But have you ever heard the phrase, they're, they're worth their weight in salt? Are, are we worth our weight in salt? Are we having an effect and an impact on the world that we live in through the salt that is in us, which is the Spirit of God, and the way that we live our lives? Are we, are we having an impact because of the pureness of our heart? Or are we causing people to stumble and not come to Christ because of the impurities that we've allowed to fester inside of us. And so Christ gives these words to his disciples and he gives these words to us. And when we listen to them, they will make a difference in us. We've talked about the corrective word, about not being quick to judge, not to, to, to not write off or to criticize those who are doing something in Christ's name, even though it's not what we would want done or how we would want it done. Are we listening to the cautionary word of Christ where we're understanding that there are things in our lives that we need to actively cut out, not so that we can be saved, but because we are saved, we should take seriously this idea of radical discipleship under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And are we listening to this counseling word of Christ? Are we thinking towards the future or are we concerned concerned with, with the now? As we go through trials, are we allowing those things to salt us and purify us in a way that would bring glory to Christ? Are we growing embittered towards God because of what he has allowed in our lives? As Christ speaks these words, he's giving a call to his disciples and to us to follow him with reckless abandon. And friends, when we do, we'll see that the salt, the pure salt that is in us will salt everything we do and God will receive the glory in every area of our lives. I wonder today, where do we need to listen to the words of Christ? As we think about those who are saved, we, we understand that this passage is predominantly speaking to those of us who have believed. But we would be making a huge mistake if we did not focus for a minute on the words Christ had to say about hell. Because hell is a real place. Hell is a real place where people will spend their eternity unless they have been forgiven through the ultimate sanctifying work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, understand this, that at the end of your life, you will stand before a judge. That judge will not be me. That judge will be nobody else in this room, but it will be the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll be examined on who your faith was in. 
Was your faith in yourself to make it to God? Or was your faith in the God who sent his son to come into this world and to die a death that he didn't deserve so a world full of sinners could be forgiven? I wonder today, will you turn to Christ? Will we turn these words of Christ to our own lives in a personal way so that we could be the people that God has enabled us to be? So much of religion says you need to be through your own strength who you can be to please God. And Jesus is saying, I want you to be who I've enabled you to be through my forgiveness and through my spirit. So I ask us today, will we listen to the words of Christ and will we be the people that he has called us to be? God, we thank you for this time that we can gather in your house. We thank you for your word. I do pray this morning that as we think through these things, God, that our desire, if we're saved, would be to be a people who bring glory to your name. God, help us to understand in our own lives where we have been hindering a work that you want to do because it's not done in the way that we want it done. God, help us to not be so arrogant to think that we're the only ones you're going to use. God, where in our lives do, do we need to cut something off or pluck something out so that our lives can model to the world the life of Jesus? And God, where in our lives have we lost our saltiness? I pray through the sanctifying fires of this life, God, that that we would live for you in reckless abandon so that when we stand before you one day and our works are tried by fire, that gold and silver and precious metals will come forth, not for our good, but for your glory. God, help us. If there's any here today who have never trusted Christ, I do pray today that this would be the day of their salvation, that they would understand that though they are sinners, there is hope for salvation in the name of Jesus. God, work in our hearts. Make known to us what needs to change. And God, may your spirit embolden us to make the changes so that we can live for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.